If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Jerry, way to kick off this episode of Classic Conversations. Welcome, everybody, to episode 128. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Great to have you back for the same old podcast with a brand new name. That's right now, we're Classic Conversations. The best conversations in pop culture, music, comedy, TV, and film. All right here, bundled up for you. Same great podcast. The only thing that's changed is the music, the intro, and the name. Really, that's it. Everything else. And the name, I think, now reflects better the actual podcast, right? What do I do week after week? Classic conversations. Even with Crossing the Streams, those are just some great conversations about TV shows and movies you should be binging. And right here, when we do the interviews, what amazing conversations we have. Nay, classic conversations. That's right. Now, when you tell your friends, they'll say, oh, a fun interview show. And you'll be like, the funnest. Go check out Classic Conversations with Jeff Jawaskin. You'll love it. Your ears. Well, thank you. Oh, that should be my tagline. I'm sure it's someone did it before. Anyway, thank you all. I'm so excited to be here with the new name, Classic Conversations. I hope you like the new art. I hope you like everything. Just the outsides have changed. The middle's all the same. For example, we have an amazing guest for you today. Oh, we've always done that. That's right. We have Stu Showstack. He's a TV historian and host of Stu's show that he's been doing since 2006. That's right, 2006, he's had his own internet show. He's talked to amazing people over the years. Dick Van Dyke, Bob Barker, Jonathan Winters, Shirley Jones, Carl Reiner, Ed Asner, and so many more. It's a who's who of classic everything. So you know I love talking to Stu. And these people became his community and friends. And then there's this new documentary out called Stu's Show, which happens to also be the name of a show. But the movie's called Stu's Show by filmmaker C.J. Wallace. This movie is available everywhere on your Amazons, your Apple TV, YouTube, Voodoo, wherever you can download digital movies. You can check out Stu's show. It's a story about his life, which is fascinating, how he got started in the TV business, how he developed a friendship with Lucille Ball. We talk a lot about Lucy. I love Lucy. He loves Lucy. We talk Lucy. And then his love for Lucy led him to meet his future wife, Janine. And then the movie itself actually kind of takes you through a health crisis that Janine had and how this classic television community he developed came and became his support system. When you see this movie, you're like, oh, if I ever get sick, I want Stu in my corner fighting for me. It's a really inspirational movie as well. And so I, I highly recommend it. And I know you're going to love my conversation with Stu. And that's coming up in just a few minutes. I hope you enjoyed last week's interview with Mark Anthony Austin, pre-visualization expert. It was fun to kind of go behind the scenes and learn a little bit more about how movies are made. 
but specifically some really cool stories about Star Wars Special Edition and how Mark Anthony Austin got to suit up and become Boba Fett and fulfill a childhood dream. Who wouldn't love to be in the Boba Fett Mandalorian armor? I know I would. That'd be awesome. Check that out. I also want to thank everyone in advance for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations, and that's how we keep the lights on. Today's interview sponsor is award-winning filmmaker C.J. Wallace's latest documentary, Stew's Show, which chronicles the relationship between legendary actress Lucille Ball and TV historian Stu Showstack. The film indirectly tells the story of TV legend Lucille Ball. The movie also tells the story of Stu meeting his wife and the health battle they fought together. Check out Stu's story on iTunes, Amazon, YouTube. It's a mixed-up story about life, loss, love, and Lucy. All right, I know you're going to enjoy it, and I know you're going to enjoy my conversation with Stu Showstack, and that's coming up right now. All right, everyone, I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, TV historian, archivist, host of Stu's show, star of the new movie, Stu's show, ladies and gentlemen, Stu Showstack. Welcome to the show, Stu. Well, thank you. You're the first person to refer to me as a star. (laughs) I don't know how to take that. (laughs) <laughs> well, you got a movie, so you're star of the movie. So, I, boom, I, star. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah. is that the way it works? Okay. I think so. I'm going to, you know, no one calls me star, but I don't have a movie. So. Well, I'll call you star. How, depending on how this interview goes, Jeff, you'll be a star in my eyes. How's that? Oh, that's so sweet. So sweet. <laughs> Stu, I love your background. I, there's this really cool, so everyone knows, movie coming out called Stu's Show, and it talks about Stu's life. And Stu does a a really cool bi-weekly show since 2006. And I really want to get into that. He talks to all the famous TV people from ever. And I love that. And then the movie also covers, it's an amazing story about Stu meeting his wife, Janine, and some health battles that they go through. It's a great story. And And we'll kind of build up to that. Kind of one of the cappers of all this also is Stu's love of Lucille Ball and his relationship with Lucy and working with Lucy. I love Lucy as well. I'm excited to hear about that. But Stu, what is your origin story? Like what, where did this, I know at some point that what kind of launched it all was kind of being a warm up guy for TV shows. But what did you do before that that kind of prepped you to be somebody who can get in front of a studio audience and get them ready? Well, it all started at a 50 watt radio station in Fresno. No, that's Ted Knight. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) No, what I had been fascinated with television from the time that I was a kid, both watching people in front of the cameras, but I was also fascinated with the way television worked. And I kind of knew at an early age, and I'm talking eight, nine, 10 years old, that I was destined to work somehow some way in television. And my parents did the best they could to discourage me. My father is a very successful customs attorney in Los Angeles, and he fully expected me to follow in his footsteps. And he did something that I regretted at the time, but it taught me the value of money. When I turned 16, I wanted a car like every kid did. He insisted that I earn whatever I could working for him over one summer. 
which I did not want to do. I would rather have taken a bus or a taxi and gone to CBS or Metro Media and watched some television show being taped. But he said, if you want a car, you've got to prove that you you will want this car and you've got to go to work for me for it. And it was the worst summer I ever had because I was confined to the filing room at his office. I made money and I made enough to buy a car, but it also convinced me even more that I didn't want to be a lawyer, at least not that type of of law. And so once I got the car, I was determined to get noticed at television shows. It was real easy in the early 70s to get into Truth or Consequences, which was people don't remember Bob Barker had a show before The Price is Right. And he was more well known to people my age for doing Truth or Consequences than he was for Price is Right, at least in those days. There was a little bit of an overlap period there. And so I started going to Truth or Consequences every week. I would go to school four hours and then I'd drive to Hollywood. And after about three months, they did start noticing me there. A job opened up that summer with the guy who was giving away the tickets to fill the studio audience. It's a lot harder job than most people think. People think they come to Hollywood and it's rough to get tickets and you can't get into these shows. That really isn't the case. In those days, there were a few shows that were tough. All in the Family was very hard to get tickets for. Mary Tyler Moore, do your television history. You can look up early 70s and you'll see. But game shows and talk shows other than John Carson were pretty easy to get into. So the guy that was booking the studio audiences realized that I wanted a career in show business. He needed somebody to help him out because he had a plethora of shows that summer, mostly game shows like Joker's Wild and uh, Family Feud, I think was just coming on the air then. Concentration with Jack Nars. Anyway, he hired me as, as his assistant and I went to various places in Hollywood like Universal Studios and the footprints in front of the Chinese theater and basically just yelled my throat dry trying to get people to take the tickets and go to the shows. But that was my end. Did that answer your question? I, at 17 years old, I got into the business as a ticket hawker for television shows. And I did that for several years before I got my break doing audience warmups. Again, it's timing, it's who you know, and it, it is a little bit of talent. That's what's involved. At least it was back then in the 70s. With the audience warmup, do you just... You obviously have a natural gift for Gap, but was there anything like, did you do stand-up comedy? Did you do anything? No, that's the fallacy. Uh, I would get laughs at the shows doing audience warm-ups, and people would come up to me afterwards as they're filing out and say, you know, you're really funny. You should go to the comedy store. And my standard answer was, what am I going to do there? Tell them about the applause signs? There's a big difference between doing audience warm-ups and stand-up comedy. Most stand-up, most stand-up comics that kind of bleed the line and get into doing audience warm-ups find that they don't get the laughs they get doing stand-up. It's a totally different animal. When you're doing audience warm-ups, you're more like a host. You're more like a game show host. And your job as an audience warm-up guy is not to sit there and talk about routines, about going to the dentist or dealing with a bad relationship or something. They're there to see the show. They're there to see the stars of the show in person. So you are the link from them to those stars. So your job is to be entertaining, to answer their questions, to get them on their feet during the long breaks, to play games with them so that they don't get bored. And most importantly, to keep their energy level up, because if there's retakes, the producers expect the audience to laugh in all the same places. And I used to have a lot of fun with that. But so you're more of a host than you are. You're not doing warmups. You're not talking at people as much as you want them to interact with you. Do, do you see the difference? Oh, yeah, yeah. As a stand-up comic myself, I what I kind of paralleled it to is when you're doing more of the crowd work. But the crowd work 
that I do comes off the confidence of having been and doing stand-up comedy. So I know how to work a crowd, right? So that's how I kind of exercise. Well, you would, you would probably do okay as a warm-up guy, but there, I've seen, yeah, I've seen when uh, associate producers see a comic at, at one of the clubs and say, you'd be great, come in and do the show. And they just do their act. And then they're handed a piece of paper to introduce the actors. And during the breaks, they don't interact with the audience. They just keep doing the shtick that they do at the clubs. And that doesn't always work at television tapings. They, the people there want to feel like they're a part of it. And so I kind of talk to them the way I'm talking to you right now. It's I, I pretended I'm just talking to one person, even though there's there's 300 people there. And I let them make fun of me. I let them pick on me. You know, I don't have ex- the, the greatest voice in the world, as you can hear. And, you know, yeah, is that your real voice? Well, my standard line in those days was I liked riding horses when I was a kid, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> so that they see that I can take a joke and I encourage them to pick on me because it helps them have a good time. I'm still in control, usually. And it worked. And the producers were happy because they got the laughs they needed during the shows. And I kept them in their seats for three, four hours. Sometimes some of these, when I started, if we went longer than 90 minutes for a half hour taping of a sitcom, that was rare. Toward the end of my career, when my hair started to get gray and and I started to get older and, and less hireable in this competitive business, it would not be unusual for me to go out at like quarter to seven and do my standard 15 minute warm up, bring out the cast. And very rarely did I ever say goodnight before midnight. It was ridiculous. The show started to get micromanaged. We were doing four or five, six takes of the same scene because if the audience didn't laugh the way they wanted them to, it's like, we better rewrite this so we get a laugh on this joke. So I, before the producers came out, I used to tell the audience, if you want to get out of here at a decent hour, just laugh. Okay. Even if you don't understand the joke, laugh, figure it out on the way home. And they loved it. They loved that. And they laughed and we got done early and the producers were always amazed amazed that I was able to do. If you just be honest with the people and tell them what they're in for. And that's my big thing is honesty. I never lied. I never, if, if we had a delay for whatever the reason was, unless it was something we didn't want to get out to the press. I said, we had a light blow out in the back of the set. It's going to take 15 or 20 minutes. What do you want to do? Do you want to do this? You want to do this? Let's have some fun while we're waiting. And that's why I was successful as long as I was until the hair started to turn color. And that was <laughs> the end of it. So there's a real science then to... Being in front of this live audience when they're taping these shows. So they will rewrite and adjust things on the fly because to them, the live audience is indicative of the home audience. Right. Except when we did Life with Lucy, people were so in awe of seeing Lucille Ball and Gail Gordon in person. It didn't matter. She could blow gas and she'd get a standing ovation. And they were a bad gauge for the audience that watched at home, because the problem we had there was she was playing to the 300 people in the bleachers. And so those shows, if you look at them today, they're not as bad as everybody said they were, but she's playing everything so broadly and everybody's speaking up and talking loud because she got it in her mind that it was 1951 again, and they didn't have this modern, terrific equipment to shoot a show with. She was great, but she was old school and you did what yet what she asked you to do because it was her show. And unfortunately, the sophistication level of what we turned out was not in tune with 1980s humor. That's basically what the problem was in there. But people were just so excited to see her in person. It was not a good gauge, you know, and Gary Morton, who did the warm up there, didn't want to tell the audience to chill a little bit because Lucy was his wife and he felt she deserved everything she got, which she did, but it just didn't translate well on the air. It's interesting because Life with Lucy, 
this came out in 1986. I have a vague memory of Life with Lucy because there was only so many episodes that even ever aired and it's really not in syndication because it didn't have like the huge amounts. TV Land probably plays it as part of maybe a marathon or something, but it doesn't play like the old Lucy shows. I did a little digging on the show because I was interested and I know you worked on it. Mm -hmm. And the impetus of the show was that it was coming on the on the heels of Bill Cosby had just come back strong with the Cosby show. And then the Golden Girls just blew up and, you know, re-energized uh, B. Arthur, Betty White, all their careers as well. So they turned to Lucille Ball. It seemed like a complete obvious thing. The whole atmosphere was right for it. And then, like you said, it just, it didn't click. They, I read that they wrote 14 episodes, filmed 13, and only eight ever aired. Correct. Very, very good, Jeff. Very good. <laughs> well, I knew you'd be here. I wanted to, co- I wanted to come with it. I'm impressed. <laughs> For a young punk, you're pretty good. I wanted to come to the table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interestingly enough, uh, her daughter in the show, Anne Dusenberry, mm-hmm. who was in Jaws 2, and one of the people I had on the show a couple times who, when I saw that you were a Lucy fan, my Billy Van Zant, he's a huge Lucy fan, also huge. Billy is a close, close friend to this day. Great guy, right? Great guy. Oh, and, oh. and so he's been on my show three times. We did... Uh, Won a general interview with his book, and then we did a Jaws 2 deep dive, and then we did a Taps deep dive. But he was obsessed with Lucille Ball, loves Lucille Ball, and Anne finally was his key to meeting her on the set of Life with Lucy. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was, it's, I like, it's fun when I can connect little threads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Annie's a sweetheart. Annie's been on my show, uh, and Billy has been on my show twice. Twice? Or three times. I think I'm tied with you, Jeff. They're, they're, he's great. He's he's a good writer. He's funny. He's a good actor. You know, I wish I was that versatile, but, you know, we take what we're given. It just happened to be coincidental. One of the episodes I was listening to of yours was your 500th episode. And Anne did a little voiceover. It said, well, if I'd rather be on the Stews show or be eaten by a shark, well... Never mind. I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> right, that right. I wrote that for. That was I funny. That, for. that was my first television broadcast. I had I got all the all the Lucy sons together to celebrate my 500 shows. So we had little Ricky Keith Thibodeau. Uh, we skyped him in from Louisiana, and Larry Anderson, who played Lucy's son-in-law on Life with Lucy, and my buddy Jimmy Garrett, who we just lost last September, uh, who was Jerry Carmichael on the Lucy Show. That was a hard one for me to deal with because it was sudden. But uh, Very sorry. I, I'm just so happy that I've got these these people. I, I can't, you know, in 16 years of doing my show, if you run through the archives and look at all the people that have we've lost since then. And I'm I'm very, very privileged to, you know, because of my passion for classic TV, I do probably like you, very in-depth interviews and uh, the stuff that when they when they're on, you know, mainstream talk shows, they don't get into. And I'm really, really lucky that I've got them all in their own words telling their stories. Carl Reiner did my show twice. And Carl was reduced in the last 20 years when he was on The Tonight Show or Conan O'Brien. He was the last guest because of the demographics. And he had six or seven minutes. And you can't 
you can't appreciate the talent and the humor and the creativity of somebody like Carl Reiner in six minutes. But attention spans for the millennials that are watching the shows these days is so, so, so small. They just don't have an appreciation for that. Carl loved doing my show because he got two hours and we got into real technical stuff on how the Dick Van Dyke show was edited and why they had to take certain jokes out and how they tried to maybe put them back in, fit them into other shows and how long it took to edit and things like this that are fascinating to people like you and me, but mainstream television has no use for that. And he was so pleased that I wanted to know how those shows were put together. And it makes for fascinating listening. Anytime I wanted, Carl, what do you need? When do you want? The the people really appreciate the fact that they're not going to be forgotten and that they're given an outlet to really just talk about whatever they want. And I assume you you allow that too with your guests. Yeah, it's funny because that's one of the reasons when I was watching the movie and I was introduced to you was like, oh, kindred spirit. This is, Stu is exactly who I want to be. <laughs> and like, well, I need to talk to someone for an hour. I want to feel like I get to know them, something that I really want to spend time with. And when you really kind of spend time with them, they'll give you that information. They'll share that extra story with you. And to me, that's kind of the the special moment. Exactly. I, as I told you before we started, um, I, I, this is a massive publicity campaign for this film. Uh, and I really want to help CJ Wallace get the word out because he worked so hard on this film. It's over two years in the making and the pandemic shut him down for a while. And the fact that he wanted to invest his time and his energy and his talent into my life story and what happened to my life before and after Janine came into it. People do need to see this film because he worked so hard on it. He and and his uh, producer, Mallory Kennedy, they're wonderful people. He's so talented and I'm doing what I can to spread the word. People need to see this film. It's a great story. I I, let's, uh, I want to get to the, the, the beautiful part about you and your wife, but let's, let's finish up with some more of the Lucy stuff. Cause I think there's some, cause that's really okay. kind of, that builds up to how you met. And so it was, it was interesting how you kind of connected. Could you talk about how you connected with Lucy and actually became, started that relationship with her and became part of the sure. Life with Lucy show? Sure. Life with Lucy came about six years after I had met her. You know, a fate can be a wonderful thing and it can be a terrible thing. And in my case, it was a wonderful thing. I was in my last year of college at Cal State Northridge. I had started off, at, started out at UCLA and I could not get into the television department there because I wanted to, I originally, I, I didn't want to be in front of the cameras or even do audience warmups at first. I just wanted to write and direct and learn what I could about the technical end of the industry. And I was at UCLA, did all my undergraduate work there, uh, hated every minute of it, couldn't stand it at the crowds, the parking. But I figured if I could get into the television department there, I would, I, I, I could at least, you know, I knew I could get all A's in there because I was so passionate and so interested in it. And at, after going to television shows from the time I was 15 until I started college, I already knew how a lot of that stuff worked. I was able to observe, you know, from the bleachers, at least how the cameras worked at the booms and all that stuff. Anyway, I couldn't get into the TV department. My grades were not good enough uh, from the general ed courses because I had no interest in them. I got B's, I got an A here and there, but I got mostly C's. And that was unlike me because all through junior high and high school, I got A's and B's. 
when they're cramming this stuff down you that you're not interested in and you're, you're really at 18, you're gung-ho about doing a career, it's really horrible. Uh, I don't know if that's changed at all in 50 years, but man, back then I couldn't wait. Anyway, my grades weren't good enough and they were also on a kick where, uh, 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 what do they call it? Affirmative action. They were under a lot of pressure to bring in as, as many people of color as they could. And so and I said to them, well, I'm Jewish. Does that, no, get out of here. You know. So what happened was, and again, this is fate. I told my parents, I said, because I was still living at home, I said, I can't, I can't get into the TV department here. There's no other major that I, I'm interested in here. And I can't stand the drive and I can't stand the large classes. And I just feel like I'm a number and not a person. Would you be upset if I transferred to Cal State Northridge? Because they have a television department there. I can get into it right away. It's old 50s equipment, but it will still give me what I want to do. And they were resigned to the fact that I wasn't going to be an attorney and work for, in my dad law firm and keep the practice going. So they said, okay, reluctantly. And two years after I started attending classes there and into the classes, and I took directing a documentary, I took writing for television, I took FCC regulations, and I loved every minute of it. The teachers there were all people that worked in the business and had retired. They weren't people that got a, a master's degree in teaching and were just there to teach. These are people that were in the golden days of television. Ralph Levy, the director of the Burns and Allen show, and Jack Benny was one of my teachers. I was in heaven. So I'm in my last semester at Cal State Northridge, and I had taken a class when I first got there called RTVF 210, Aesthetics of Television, which I breezed through. It was a history of television with the cathode tubes and, and RCA and, and the heads of the networks and all. And I knew all that stuff just from the research. I was there. So what happened was they signed Lucille Ball to teach a class there on Monday nights, and they called it TV Aesthetics, RTVF 210. And I'd already taken it, but believe it or not, this was being held in the largest auditorium at Cal State Northridge. It held 275 people. They were so afraid that there wouldn't be enough TV majors taking this class that they opened it up to non-majors. So what happened was it was first come, first serve. My counselor at the time told me to take the class. They would name it something else for me and give me the three units because I had already taken it, but they would count it toward an, a different elective that I still needed to take to graduate. And as I said in the documentary, I was working as a ticket hawker in those days. And one of the shows I was giving away tickets to for was One Day at a Time. And I got to know Mackenzie and Valerie very well. Mackenzie's still a friend to, to me today. Uh, and I got to know Pat Harrington real well and Bonnie Franklin. And I got to know the director really well, who was a guy named Herb Kenwith. And he was kind of a fuss, fuss budgety, cranky kind of guy, but he was nice to me because he saw potential in this young person who was interested in behind the scenes. So he let me sit in the booth while they were uh, blocking the show and directing. And that's when I started to get firsthand knowledge of how these shows operated. So I casually mentioned to him because I knew he had directed a few episodes of Here's Lucy. And I knew that she had done a couple of stage plays out in the LA area in the late 40s. And he, when he was getting started, most of these TV director veterans started directing plays on stage because it helped them stage their cameras once uh, tell the live days of television came along. So I know that he had known Lucy for a long time. And I mentioned, I'm under a lot of pressure. They want me to take this, this class at Cal State Northridge, but I've already taken the class. I've already gotten the units for it. And, but it's being taught by Lucille Ball, who I've been a fan of since I was six years old. He said, don't take the class. And, and I said, really, why not? And he said, well, because I work with her and she's not the Lucy Ricardo you think she is. She's very difficult to be around. She's bossy and pushy. 
She's a B. I won't use the word here, but he mm-hmm. used the word. And, you know, your your bubble will be burst. If you're a big fan of hers, you're going to see a side of her that you will not like. So my advice to you is not to take the class. And then he said, and I said, well, I heard that she pretty much takes charge on her set. And he said, yes, except when I directed her, I wouldn't accept any of that. And she said, oh, he said there were many times where she would say, no, I want to stand here. And I'd say, no, Lucy, you stand there. And she'd get upset with me and run into her dressing room and come back five minutes later and say, okay, we'll do it your way. Well, after meeting Lucy, I knew that was not correct. I knew that he was trying to exert his authority with me. So I went back to my counselor and I said, you know, I'm working in the business now. And I talked to this prominent director who I, I is letting me observe him directing. And he's telling me these horrible things about her. And I really don't want my bubble burst because I don't, want to see another side of a person that I have undue respect for talent and for what she accomplished in the business. And he said to me, and I'll never forget this. And I'm not sure he said this to me because he wanted me to be in the class. So it was one more seat filled. But what he said made sense. He says, you know, I've been in this business a long time. He was a former director at KABC Channel 7 in Los Angeles. And he said, you hear stuff like this all the time in show business. So-and-so is a bastard. So-and-so is mean. So-and-so will kick you in the butt if you don't do your job right, blah, blah, blah. He said, I've always said, let me judge for myself. Let me meet this person. Let me work with this person and let me form my own opinion. And he said, if you take nothing else away from this meeting and from your time here at Cal State Northridge, just remember that as your career goes up and down and it will go up and down in show business if that's the path you choose. And I took the class based on that. And that was the best, Jeff, that was the best advice anybody gave me because taking that class changed my life. There were 200 people in that class. A good 40 to 50% of them were non-majors and were just sitting there in awe of her and not participating made it easier for me to participate. I knew so much about her career at that point already from just the research I had done. It was all Q&A. It was three hours of Q&A. So you had to have a battery, a barrage of questions ready for her. And she would. She had a seating chart in front of her so she could learn everybody's name. And God love her at 68 or however old she was at the time, she learned everybody's name in that class, even the ones that didn't participate. But she got to know me right away because I asked questions that unless anybody else in that class did the research I did, and a couple of times I blew her away. How did you know that? You know, and I asserted myself during the breaks. I'd go up there and chat with her while she'd be sipping coffee and smoking a cigarette. And I just talked to her. And after a few weeks, she asked me about what my family background was and if I had brothers and sisters and all this. So by the end of the class, 15 weeks later, I got enough nerve to say, you know, look, if uh, you have an opening, because she had just signed a deal. She After 20 some years, she just left CBS. And Fred Silverman, who had just taken over NBC, had signed her to create new shows for NBC. So the timing there was perfect. And they didn't have anything for me right away there. But I said, if you have anything, you know, let me know because I'm, you know, obviously I want to get in this business. And I had given her, I was doing a documentary on I Love Lucy for my documentary class. And I got up enough nerve to give her a rough cut of the of the tape, as you saw in the documentary. She and Gary Morton, her husband, they liked it. And he called me uh, the next day and I, I talked to him with the office and, you know, I pulled the right strings. I pressed the right buttons. And when she went on a promotional tour to promote her first special for NBC, I went to all the shows that she was at just to let her know that I was there. And at a couple of them, like Merv Griffin, she saw me in the audience and on the show, she mentioned to Merv. Now that's one of my former students there and he's, he's going to go places. 
when the timing was right, a couple, I kept in touch when the timing was right a couple of years later and her, her longtime publicist and keeper of her film vault passed away. It was a no brainer. Gary said, let's put, he called me Stewie. Let's put Stewie in charge of this. And that started a 10 year relationship with them that ended. Actually, I, I still did some work after Lucy died in 1989, but by 1990, 91, it was over. Gary had moved to Palm Springs and Lucy Arnaz had taken over everything. I had to show her uh, everything that was there. And she just made the decision that she didn't want any of her mother's former people around her. She wanted to learn how to do this stuff herself. And I can understand that. The long answer to your short question, Jeff. No, that was that was great. I Do you think people had issue with her? Because even still, they just couldn't deal with a strong, powerful woman with such strong business sense. If you read some of the books that have been written about her, I, there's one book, and don't don't ask me which one because there have been so many. They interviewed Claude Akins, who did one of her shows in the 60s, and he was not complimentary toward her. He said, she grabbed me by the arm and twisted me and said, do it to that camera. And I could see her doing that. And in answer to your question, that's the way that she felt she had to be. When Desi was running stuff at the studio and was her co-star, she deferred to him. Now, that's not to say that she didn't know her stuff on the set. And if she wanted something her way, they would accommodate her. And, and from what I've, I've heard talking to the Desi Lu executives that were there during when Desi left and then when they sold the studio to Paramount, they basically said, you know, she didn't have to get, she felt she had to get tough after Desi left because she, the way that she worked was unless she portrayed herself a certain way on that set, she didn't think anybody would take her seriously. As Jimmy Garrett says in the documentary, she was a woman in power when it was only men in power. And she was constantly concerned that unless she made it clear that this is the way it has to be, she didn't think anybody would take her seriously. Here's this woman thinking she knows the business, which she did. Now, we didn't have that problem on Life with Lucy because everybody that worked there, she tried to get as many people back working for her than she had in the old days, and they were all used to it. You see, once you realize how she is, and she has this unbelievable ability to know where cameras should be placed, where lights should go, where the boom mic should go. Milton Burrow had that. Bob Hope had that. Jack Benny, George Burns, they all had that. But the difference there, they were all men, okay? She was the first woman to really break that barrier, and she never got the credit. Today, she'd fit right in with Amy Poehler and all of these people, that these strong women that are, that are running the shops. She'd fit right in, but she paved the way for all of them. And back then, it was just not something that was done. You know, there were, there were a lot of female sitcom writers, but you never hear about them. You only hear about Madeline Davis. Because she, because of the reruns of I Love Lucy, but but Selma Diamond was a writer, Cheryl Gordon was a writer, Joanna Lee, all of these people were very successful. All these females were very successful writers, but you never hear about it because it was a men's club back then. So once you're comfortable with the way she works, she's not pushy, she's not bossy. Is she in charge? Yes, but you do what she says because it's her show. Now that worked against her in the 80s because she was still doing 1960s. And 1950s, you know, staging and, and playing to the audience type of thing, which didn't fly in the 80s. And, and the one regret that I had is had we done a show more like Golden Girls, where we weren't jamming down everybody's throat that, yeah, she's 75, but she can still take a pie in the face or get squirted with water. And we did more of an insult humor type of thing. I think we might have, might have had a longer run. They put us in a lousy time period. 
and they expected us to turn around ABC for them. And the audience wasn't even there for the first week. We did okay the first week, but it was downhill after that because it was the same old, same old, which in deference to the writers, they thought that's what everybody wanted because the I Love Lucy reruns were so popular in the 80s. They were everywhere. Some markets had them on three, four times a day. They modeled that Lucy Barker character kind of after Lucy Ricardo. There was kind of the Lucy Carter pushiness in that character too, but people didn't care in person. They just wanted to see her see her in person uh, when we filmed the shows, but the shows just didn't work well on the air because you had the sophistication of the Golden Girls. You had Cheers on at that time. You had family ties. Yeah, you had your less sophisticated shows. Like I worked on Silver Spoons. You know, that's not exactly a Fellini film. We had different strokes. But to bring Lucy back, they expected the caliber of the previous shows that I mentioned. And that we didn't have. The writers thought they were giving everybody what they wanted. The problem was it wasn't Lucy Ricardo and she wasn't 35 or 40 years old. And that's, Jeff, we could psychoanalyze this for hours. These are my takes on it. And that's, that's why the show didn't work. Right. You can't say it's because she was older because the Golden Girls was huge. I know she was hesitant. I read that she was hesitant to even come back. And then, you know, money, maybe maybe getting the same exact writers that she had, getting Bob Carroll Jr. and Madeline back, maybe. Maybe they should have. Well, again, I I don't want to get into into the details there. They were lovely, lovely, lovely people. Madeline and I remained friends with both of them until the day both of them passed. They were so quiet and so shy. It is so hard to imagine the stuff they wrote with Jess Oppenheimer in the 50s, this broad, amazingly funny slapstick. And Madeline had a voice like this. That's why I was so upset with that Aaron Sorkin film. They he made Madeline into some kind of monster. Which, if Madeline was alive today, she would have said, "What did I ever do to this guy? This was not this was not me." That was going to be one of my questions. I was going to ask you what you thought of being you, the Ricardos. You, you, you think I'm talking a lot now? I don't know if you want me to go into it. <laughs> I, I was appalled, absolutely appalled. And maybe it's because I was too close to all of it. But it was it was a hundred minutes of lies and and falsifications. And he made Lucy out as this cold, heartless woman who only cared about herself. Now you saw the documentary, right? I saw that, and then I saw Amy. Right, Polar's but you saw. I'm talking loved. about the CJ's, the Stu Show documentary. Oh yeah. Lucy Lucy in the flesh is in that. And you saw enough of me interacting in that. Did that Lucy to you look like the Lucy that Nicole Kidman played? No, 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 no. But Aaron Sorkin sort of always has a certain Well, yeah, I call being the Ricardos uh, the West Wing at Desilu, because that's all he did. He took the characters (laughs) from the West Wing and adapted them. And I don't fault the actors. I want to make that clear right now. They were doing what they were told to do. But my big fear with that, and and luckily uh, there were enough people that felt like me, was that people that were are not familiar with Lucille Ball as a person in her career are going to come away from that thing thinking that's how it was. I mean, right down to the end of the film, that's not how that whole Red Scare thing went down at all. He didn't, they, they didn't have the capability to play a telephone call to the audience in those days. He had spoken to J. Edgar Hoover in his office that morning before they filmed the show. And J. Edgar assured him that the next day she would be clear. And the one line that Desi did, which is in the Amy Poehler documentary, that Sorkin didn't think was dramatic enough to end the thing was, the only thing read about my wife is her hair. And even that's not legitimate, which got a huge (laughs) laugh in the audience. But Sorkin said, I didn't write that, so I'm not going to put that in. Jeff, don't get me started on that, please. We'll be here all night. Okay, okay. Let's uh, let's rewind, rewind. Let me ask you another question about the class that you took with Lucy. Mm -hmm. 15 weeks, once a week? Yes. Okay, so... 
three hours of Q&A. So if I'm doing math in my head real fast, 45 hours of just Q&A well, with let, Lucy let me, Ball. Let me, or, let, give let or me, take. Give let or me take. modify that. We would start the evening with a Lucy show or an I Love Lucy or something that she did. So that would spark okay. questions for the rest of that hour. And then and she brought guests in. She brought Gary in a couple of times. Gary lectured the audience on, on how the show was put together and how it was edited and all of that sort of thing. But yeah, for the most part, I mean, we had breaks. There was a break every hour for 10 minutes. Sure. But 20, 25 hours, whatever it is. I mean, it's just massive amounts of mm-hmm. time getting firsthand. Oh man, that's it was if for me, amazing. for me, I mean, you know, I wasn't going to take the class and, and Mr. Burroughs, my, my counselor said, no, 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 you judge for yourself, take the class. And you know, to this day, He's responsible for that Lucy connection because I wouldn't have taken the class based on what Herb Kenwith told me a one day at a time. So, right. It seems like there's two Lucy's, right? There's a Lucy that you just, when you watch the show, the hilarious redhead that just is encapsulated on film. And then there's Lucille Ball, the, the businesswoman, right? And maybe some people just can't deal with it, but the, it was the businesswoman, her and Desi, Desi Lou Productions. I mean, that's why we have The Untouchables, Star Trek, right. Mission Impossible. Uh, I mean, these are franchises that today are still oh, yeah. bonkers huge. Wow. The biggest break for Paramount was buying Desi Lou. Let me make one thing clear. She was the vice president of Desi Lou when Desi was running the studio. And she was mainly there concerned with her acting in the show and, and making sure that the show was in great shape, you know, and, and, and concentrate on herself. When Desi sold his interest in Desi Lou in 1962, that's when she became a figurehead. And to hear her tell it, she just did what the executives told her to do. Martin Leeds and Ed Holly and Bernie Weitzman and all of the people that were on the Desi Lou board. They would run the business, and but she had to answer to the stockholders. She had to make the speeches. She had to say what the company was doing, and she hated it. She hated every part of that. She just wanted to act and to do her show, but she kind of got thrust into that thing and had to do that because she was the president of the company. So when Paramount came along in 1966 and said, are you interested in selling Desilu? She couldn't wait to get that deal consummated. And she ended up renting space from them to continue. Uh, you know, She had to get a new show because the Lucy show was part of that sale. The format and the characters and everything were then owned by Paramount. And that's why Here's Lucy began when she brought in her kids and kept Gail. But they played basically she and Gail played the same relationship. It's just that he was her brother-in-law as opposed to her boss. It was still Mr. Mooney and her with a, with a different name. And then Universal made them an offer. Uh, and she found out that once she was a tenant at her own lot, she didn't get, she, she didn't get the, uh, the immediacy when she needed something that she got when she was the head of the studio. Mm-hmm. She was a merely a tenant and she didn't get treated the same way she did. So that when Bernie Weitzman moved over to, to Universal to run the operation there, he pretty much promised her the same deal she had during the Desi Lou days. And that's why they left Paramount and went to Universal. She was back in, in you know, getting everything she wanted again at that point. So in the movie, it, your love for Lucy kind of comes to a point where this is how you meet Janine, who uh, your future wife to be right. also a huge Lucy fan. And this is where the, the kind of the documentary takes on a, a different story where it's your relationship. And all these amazing people, all these famous, famous people that you've known. And then uh, Janine gets ill. And I'll let you kind of talk about that. But and then just the support system that you had with Tony Dow and Ed Asner. And like just, I mean, that's just scratch. That's not even scratching the surface. So it's incredible. The only reason that uh, these people rallied around us is because they were our friends and they happened to be classic TV stars and they happened to be 
part of my circle because of my talk show all those years. We, I, I was very blessed in that people had such a good time when they came over here to do the shows that it's like, well, you know, let's stay in touch. Let's socialize. And about 90% of the people that did my show, we became friends with. I mean, you know, we exchanged Christmas presents and we go to dinner and all of that stuff. It's just kind of a fringe benefit of doing a show in Hollywood based on classic TV. So my point is, is that I think in any situation when a husband and wife, or in our case, you know, we got married because of what happened, but we were boyfriend, girlfriend. And I think anytime a significant other has a major medical emergency, your friends and your family all rally around you. It just so happened that the people that rallied around us were our friends because of Stu's show. And so that's what CJ was so enthralled with is the fact that all of these classic TV stars sort of, you know, bonded with us and were there for us during this, you know, tremendous time that, you know, she was recovering from the brain aneurysm. But I do think in any situation, whether regardless of whether anybody's famous or not, I do think that your true friends will rally around you and give you the support. We were just lucky that that we had all of these, you know, close friends that really liked us and were really concerned for her. You do really find out when something like that happens, just who your friends, you know, and your close relatives are. And we were blessed. I mean, you know, I'm still praising them to this day. Because it was not a fun time of our lives. Uh, And I think the movie makes that clear. One of the messages I took from the movie, too, was just how much you got to fight and question the doctors and push back and and really kind of own when somebody's going, whether you or somebody you love is going through something. Make sure you really understand what's going on and are part of that. And don't just, doctors are awesome and they know a lot of stuff. Yes. Yes. There are. I have to make this clear. One of the reasons I agreed to do the film was I wanted to show the public that you can deal with the insurance companies and the medical industry. You have to become a bastard a lot to get heard, but there are wonderful doctors. There are wonderful nurses. There are wonderful therapists out there. I want to make that clear. Uh, I don't want anybody walking away saying, boy, that medical industry is really screwed. Look what this poor guy had to go through to get his wife well. There are wonderful doctors, but there's a lot of red tape and there's a lot of places, especially since now we're finally coming out of this pandemic where there's just not enough qualified people to take care of the input of patients. And uh, if you think it's bad during the pandemic, imagine back in 2014 when this was happening and it was just a normal day-to-day routine. You have to have a knowledge of this stuff. You have to learn how the system works. And I... (laughs) I got on the job training because I was never confronted with anything like this during my lifetime, anything major that happened in my family. My parents or my uncle or my grandparents dealt with this. I got this. This all happened. Boom. November. I'll never forget is November 19, 2013. And in that span of three or four days, I learned so much and I continued to learn. You have to learn how to work the system. You have to know what to do and you have to become angry and crazy at times because these people, although they're dedicated, it's a job to them. It's just like what you do, Jeff. It's just what I do. They're used to dealing with sick patients. They're used to dealing with death. They're used to, this is is common for them each day. What they're not used to are health advocates that really care about the people that are in there. Now, I'm sure there's a good percentage of people that are, but I was not about to let 
this fall apart. And it was the doctors at Cedars, the ones that did the serious brain procedures on them. They're the ones that said to me, she's going to be okay. Believe it or not, there's not a lot of brain damage in there. Her cognitive skills have been damaged. We won't know exactly what that is until she wakes up from the coma, which if you saw the film is almost six weeks. And the damage was much further extensive than they thought. And so in that in that respect, doctors usually don't give you hope. They usually play on the side of pessimism so that you're not disappointed. These guys, based on the surgery she had and and the stability that she had afterwards and what they could see through the MRIs and the MRAs and the x-rays and all that, there's not that much damage here. She's very lucky. She's going to recover. Well, she recovered, but not totally. She's still not 100% today. But that hope was why I fought so hard. If they said, well, she's never going to walk again, as that one doctor did, I don't want to tip off everything in there. But thank God Ed Asner was with me when that one doom and gloom doctor came in. So I had a witness to that. If the Cedars doctors who were wonderful, who were absolutely wonderful, especially Dr. Michael Alexander, the head neurosurgeon there, he saved her life. If they had not told me that, I don't know whether I would have fought as hard to get her well, because if they didn't think there was hope for her, then why should I? And don't even get me started on what my plan B was for her head. But the fact that she said that they said she was going to recover from this, they, they said fully, I don't think I would have fought as hard. She did. She didn't recover fully, but she's she's mobile, and you know it's certainly better than the alternative. It was once we left Cedars and we got assigned to these secondary hospitals and also to the rehab places, which need to be shut down. I don't want to get on a soapbox or talk about now, but these places are just horrible. They, the, your your listeners can see the film and they can judge for themselves. I've got it in my will, though, as a result of this, that if I get into a state where I can't take care of myself, I'm to have full time help here. I am not to go to one of these places. As you saw in the film, there were several moments in that film where I was screaming at the insurance company saying, she's coming home and you're going to give her round the clock care at home. I don't trust these places and they wouldn't pay for it. And luckily there were things that happened during those periods, which I allowed and she got better. Let's just just put it that way. It was inspirational watching you fight. And I it just, it, we should all have a stew in our lives. When uh, the going gets rough and you need someone, you know, a few people that have seen the film like you, you know, are saying to me, you know, would you be my health advocate? And I said, I, I retired from that when Janine came home. That is one aspect of my life that I do not want to uh, to entertain again. I am through being a health advocate. So, <laughs> oh, it takes a lot out of you. I can imagine that's a once and done. That's a yeah. once and done. I loved her relationship with Ed Asner, though. That was cute. And the way. That- oh, did that man adore her? I don't know what, and Ed was a wonderful, wonderful man. Oh, I cried when I found out that he passed last August. He just adored her. And he was a such a giving person, never said no to anything, charity-wise or anything. When do you want me? When when can I help you? How can I help you? And we had we took him out for his birthday every year and we had such a good time. And he was, ah, oh, and Dick Van Dyke and his wife, Arlene, they took care of me. That was one part of the film that, that got cut for whatever reason, but the Van Dykes were wonderful to me. Arlene never wanted me alone while Janine was in the hospital during the major holidays. So Easter, Christmas, Valentine's Day, any excuse for a holiday, please come over. Let me, let us give you a meal. You know, we don't want you to be alone. It's just incredible. The support you get Tony and Lauren Dow, same thing. I mean, you know, Lauren married us and Jeannie Russell and Jerry Jewell. And, you know, I, I I know I'm going to leave people to Stan Livingston. All of these people were just, I mean, daily calls from Michael Cole and Mike Clifford, who was only in the film uh, via pictures. Oh, 
just, you know, and people are saying, are, are we bugging you that we're calling you every day? No, no, I want to give you updates. It's just incredible the support you have. And like I said, it, we were just lucky that it happened to be famous people. I, I think in a situation like this, where, where it's a, you know, a private individual, I think your true friends will rally around you. So, you know, regardless of whether they're in the business or not. That was cool. I, I had the opportunity to talk to Ed Asner a few months before he passed away. That was quite a oh. thrill, quite a thrill. He was so great. He was one of those, he's one of those actors, like many, but like him specifically, it just transcends. Like my kids knew who Ed Asner was for a different reason than up, I know who Ed up Asner is. That is. was the big Up and uh, Elf is one right, of our favorite movies. Right. We, I, we'd take him to autograph shows, as you saw in the documentary, and we'd have scads of Mary Tyler Moore and Lou Grant pictures, and everybody just went to Carl Fredrickson. They all just went to Up. And it was so great because it revitalized his career. I mean, he never stopped working, but he didn't have the popularity and the notoriety of Lou Grant for those 30-odd years. And Elf helped a little bit, but Up just made him in. Betty White's range as a superstar. And we were so happy for him because he deserved it. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. And I miss him. I miss him terribly. And then Tony Dow was your best man at the wedding. <laughs> I Wally, Wally Cleaver was my best man. And he's a wonderful guy <laughs> too. Okay. Warm and nice. And Lauren, his wife is terrific. I said, if Lauren's going to marry us, you've got to be the best man. And he was so taken aback by that. He wasn't expecting it. It was great. The wedding was People are still, it's eight years almost, and people are still talking about the wedding and how great it was, which makes me feel really good because that was a payback to all of them. All of the people that were there were the people that rallied around us. And I, you know, it was the hottest ticket in town. I don't want to pat myself on the back and break my arm, but it was the hottest ticket in town. We, we could only have a certain number of people. And there were a lot of people that were disappointed, celebrities and non-pros that wanted to come. And I said, no, this is payback for the 150 people that surrounded us during this whole ordeal. That's why I did an audience warm up at the wedding. I wanted people to laugh. And most of them had not seen Janine since, since she came home a month earlier. And so they didn't know what to expect. And the big thing was, Janine, you've got to be able to walk down the aisle. We have to prove that you're going to get well and you're going to be better. And damn it, Jeff, she did. She walked, she had to be helped by my dad, but she did it. She walked down the aisle. Well, it's a beautiful thing. And then everyone listening, I'll, I'll put links, but it, it's called Stu's Show. It's by C.J. Wallace. Put it together. It tells the amazing story of Stu and Janine. And you should definitely check it out. It's a it's a it's a great watch. Stu, I can't thank you enough. Well, it's my pleasure. It's, it's a, nice to meet you, Jeff. Just like you didn't know me, I didn't know you. Now I know you. Now I've got another podcast to listen to. Awesome. I know. Now we can be our we can be each other's biggest yeah. fans. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, I hope the movie is a blockbuster and I wish you nothing but the best. And uh, everyone check out Stu's podcast, especially if you like mine. He talks to all Oh the yeah, yeah. You won't get a word in edgewise over. if you do my show, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was great. A pleasure. All right, how incredible is Stu's show stack, huh? What a great story. Check out the documentary, Stu's Show. You will thoroughly enjoy it. And check out Stu's Show, which is, you know, Stu's actual show that he does, his internet show. You can find all that information at stewsshow.com. Well, with the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right, it's time for another trending hashtag from the world of hashtag roundup. Follow hashtag Roundup on Twitter at hashtag Roundup. Download the free, always free, doesn't cost a penny app at the iTunes or Google Play Store. Tweet along with us. And one day, one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. 
fame, and fortune await you. Today's hashtag, hashtag brand name, movies, or TV shows. Had to go with a TV show-themed hashtag. Of course we did. This one's from Raging Blonde Tags, a weekly game on hashtag Roundup. It's the ultimate mashup of brand names and a movie or a TV show. It's your choice, a movie or a TV show. Just jam a brand name in there. The ultimate brand mashup game. All right, let's read some hashtag brand name movies or TV shows. Ugly Betty Crocker, Red Robin Hood, Dial M&M for murder. These are some great examples to kick off hashtag brand name movies or TV shows. York and Mindy, Orange Julius is the new Black Angus. Dude, where's my Carhartt? Once Upon a Time X in Hollywood. Midnight in the Olive Garden of Good and Evil. Turning Red Bull. You getting it? Hashtag brand name movies or TV shows. Third Hard Rock from the Sun. Wreck-It Ralph Lauren. 101 Dell Machines. In and Outer Limits. From Craig Shoemaker. Check out Craig on episode 14 of the podcast. Coke Zero Dark 30. The Fisher Price is Right. Starburst Wars. Kit Kat on a Hot Tin Roof. Dr. Hoover. Honda, I Shrunk the Kids. And our final hashtag brand name movies or TV shows. Tweet the Dick Van Klondike Show. Oh, there we go. Those were some awesome hashtag brand name movies or TV shows. Grab the hashtag Roundup app. Tweet along with us. Have some good times. All those tweets, as always, are retweeted at Jeff Dewaskin Show on Twitter. That's right. We didn't change the handle for Instagram or Twitter. We figured we'd keep one thing easy. Head on over to at Jeff Dewaskin Show. Tweet at us. Let us know how you like everything. Show those tweets some love. Tweet your own. I'll show you some Twitter love as well. Well, with the hashtag over and the interview over, it can only mean one thing. Oh my goodness, episode 128 has come to an end. I want to thank my special guest, Stu Showstack, star of Stu's show. Check that out. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.